0: Hi and welcome to the Rethink Energy Podcast. The Rethink Energy team is here and the analysts will be talking about this week's energy news. I'm CEO Pete White and Editor uh, Bogdan Avermutter is away yet again. He's in Boston at a wind conference. But we do have solar analyst Andrew Vantalar. Hello, hello, hello. EV and battery specialist Colin Watts. Hello and we're going to discuss some of the stories published last night in our weekly analysis subscription service if you need to uh have renewable energy analyzed on a weekly basis then you need to go to rethinkresearch.biz click on the energy button and request a free trial and then you can evaluate the service and you can read these stories this week we published a forecast about solar jobs we're planning to uh do a forecast of all energy jobs through to 2050, but um, we're going to do them one subject at a time. So that essay is on that site, and it will see solar uh, employment go from three million people globally back in 2019. It's already double that, and it will rise till it reaches 13.7 million in 2035, after which it will fall. We'll also talk through the latest price increases guess what, in quartz sand used for making crucibles in the polysilicon manufacturing process. And we're gonna wonder how Norway managed to miss the largest phosphate deposit on the planet, right under its nose all these years, but suddenly, just when it needs it, it's found it. Uh, Finally, I'm gonna ask one or two questions about the short items we published this week. But first, we're gonna go to um, jobs first, and I, I wrote that forecast so we're going to talk about how many people will be employed in solar really i think i've i've got to the nub of it there's no way that the solar industry is going to stay where it was in 2019 and um, we're already seeing 50 percent increases every year you have to take into account when you're doing this that all solar panels need to be um permitted uh, and sometimes Uh, legal filings have to be made to install them, and they all have to be maintained. There's a difference between installing um, commercial industrial solar, because those projects are larger scale, and home solar, because they're smaller scale, and utility solar, which can take a lot of shortcuts. There's also sales and distribution that go into it, and and we're looking at how Uh, America and Europe wants to distort solar manufacturing globally by reshoring it back to where the industry kind of began, but where it mostly went bust um, 10 years ago or more. So what we've done is not, um, as we say, a back of a cigarette packet forecast. We've done a little detail here. We've looked into how those efficiencies will change over time. We've looked at past numbers of how things have got more efficient. We forecast that getting better and, and therefore maintaining or installing one gigawatt of solar with less people, a bit less each each year. You know, initially five percent less, and then falling to three percent less. We built those kind of things into the model, kind of back end of a learning curve. But really, what's key here is that um, people are always talking about saving fossil fuel jobs. The fossil fuel jobs uh, in the Good old coal industry were poisonous affairs. Uh, had you digging um, a mile underground and coming up with all sorts of uh, lung diseases, whereas most of these jobs are blue collar, um, uh, more intellectually based, and longer lasting. So um, you know the point is uh, of doing the these numbers is we're trying to paint a picture of what the future society will be like. I mean we all. Um, Remember, in our if if you're a, a, a closing on retirement age, you'll remember professions that have gone by the wayside, and there'll be questions like, "Did Grandpa really dig go uh, a mile underground and dig for coal when we have this solar stuff here all the time?" Um, and and um, there will be millions of people doing renewable jobs. Um, at the moment, um, the Chinese coal industry still employs six point six million people, four point one million in coal mines. Sometime in the future, um, the um, China will employ about five point million people in solar, almost the same number. So um, the global numbers that the IEA say um, that we've um, we have employed in energy is about 65 million. At the end of this series of articles, we'll be able to say um, what that number goes up to, um, because we've got to look at coal and gas and oil falling as wind, batteries, hydrogen and solar rise.
1: So something interesting from this graph is it looks like the employment doesn't decline in intensity in, in number of people per gigawatt. Uh, Not by much. Well, no,
0: it's, I mean, I said in the model, all we've done is look at the jobs which are people intensive, um, increase the efficiency by 5% per annum for about um, six or seven years, and then 3% per annum for another six or seven years, and then zero thereafter. You get things like 32% improvement in productivity in utility scale over the past five years. Well, yeah, you know, that's because we didn't really know how to build massive one, two gigawatt uh, installations um, like like going across the deserts in in Australia uh, or Chile. So that's been an aggressive learning curve. But we don't think those type of numbers are still available to us.
2: I pay attention to the uh, Chinese employment market a fair bit just out of curiosity more than anything. And china's population demographics for that kind of 2030 uh, to 2040 time period enter a kind of downward shift you mentioned there was what 6.6 6 million who were in who were working within the coal industry yeah most of which in mining
0: yeah 4.1 4. Yeah.
2: yeah one of the kind of dominant trends of chinese and urban chinese industry in particular is that youth unemployment is incredibly high but there all there's also significant kind of manual labor shortages it's quite similar to Western employment markets where kind of trades are out of favor because of the kind of pushing of university in the blue collar, not the blue collar, the white collar stuff. Yep. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves because the Chinese economy still has a pretty significant agricultural population that it can shift into more urban roles or at least higher paying roles.
0: Well, it's available. I mean, uh, social mobility is available to anyone in China. That's, that's key is that if you're smart enough and you can get yourself an education um, and potentially, I don't know this, but if you know the right people, you can then uh, climb up the social ladder uh, into a much higher paid role. And I believe that's the same as any in society that's going through the industrialization process. I mean, you remember that 20 years ago, perhaps not 20, perhaps it was 35 years ago, that they kind of started having mass installations of televisions inside the country and they they became one of the biggest importers of televisions in the world and then they started making televisions then they dominated the television industry and now they export more flat tv screens than anyone any other country on the planet including including korea and um and japan and they've effectively taken ownership of some of the the American and Japanese industry so you you climb up that ladder all the time uh, in the industrialization process and then you make the circuit boards that go in the televisions and then you eventually write the software that goes in the televisions each time the work the the labor force uh, is bringing more money into the GDP and and therefore your there's more to go around and more imported more balance of better balance of payments so that, that's the process that China's been going through for, for, from when I was at school. Uh, you know, let's not say how many years ago that was, 45 years ago or, or so. And, and obviously, we're going to see a similar process, but probably slower in India. We're going to see the same going on in the Philippines, and, and we've seen it all, all, also happening in Taiwan. And in the 60s, we saw it happening in Japan and Korea. So you know, that, that's a, a common pattern that everyone's familiar with, um, sociologists in particular, understand that you concentrate more, um, and more jobs in the city. Um, you, uh, although in renewable energy, that might not be the case.
2: <laughs> I mean, if your job is cleaning... Well, my point with all of this yeah. was that um, usually in this industrialization process, there's a shift away from the raw material like extraction, away from the low value-adding industries, like menial manufacturing jobs. and chemical production and that sort of thing. And we're not seeing that in China yet, but with the changes in employment demographics and education statistics, China might be forced away from that kind of upstream end of the market. Oh,
0: yeah. And it will export those jobs out, out to Indonesia, Malaysia and, uh, and the Philippines. I mean, yeah, that's exactly what it will do. And when you're saying we're not seeing it, yes, you are seeing it. You just said there's a massive labor shortage. And the young people don't want to do it because they want to work the drone fleet that is uh, checking solar panels which need cleaning or which are in shade which is an intellectual job it's something they can do with um, with with modern skills and pro- that probably pays better so the reason there's a shortage the reason there's lots of advertising for those jobs is because no one wants to do them because they've got higher aspirations
2: Yes, but it is also maintaining and expanding its current manufacturing production capacity within China. It's a bit both yeah,
0: Yes, it is doing that. But it's a little short at the end of uh, the issue about one of the large solar manufacturing companies exporting most of that to Malaysia and uh, another country, because it uh, partly to get around the Inflation Reduction Act, but also because um, nobody wants to do that those jobs. I mean... The uh, I, I, I hate touching on it, but the weaker problem um, goes away. You don't force people to um, uh, put people into forced labor situations um, when people will willingly take those jobs in neighboring countries, uh, and you can turn your people from uh, from being um, farmers laborers into uh, solar planners. Um, so uh, you know th- th- it takes a long time when you've got over a billion people. Anyway, that's, uh, that's just an introduction. If you want to read that, that, that piece, go to the website, uh, rethinkresearch.biz. That's the second piece in this week's issue. And as I say, there'll be a series of articles on that subject. But we now want to go, just to satisfy Andrees' perverse love of complex topics, we're going to, uh, we're going to invite him yet again to give us a lecture on Quartz Crucibles.
1: Yes, and I, I like this topic because I believe very few people are covering it, uh, at least on the English language internet, so I don't feel redundant in the slightest. Uh, on, on, on the negative side, I'm going to want to justify all these numbers again in yet another article at some point, which is going to be terribly painful, you know, verifying all of these different statistics and how many crucibles it is per gig- gigawatt and what the? How much of the cost of a crucible comes exactly from the high purity quartz and so on? Oh, just be such a slog. But anyway, so with polysilicon gone, I'm almost bereft of topics to talk about because surely supply chain issues are the only interesting uh, topics, the only really spicy ones. But there is one left in solar, which is quartz crucibles, and I think I think I last covered it in May, and I said that it had reached. of total module cost? I now believe that it's 10% of module cost. And I lay out various calculations in this article uh, to explain that. Uh, Quite high effort. And it's still just the same issue. The supply is just not expanding for interface. It'll take a couple of years for uh, Sibelco. I think it was Sibelco. If it wasn't Sibelco, it was the other Western one, which is the (laughs) quartz corporation too. Uh, One of them, I think it was Sibelco, doubled its uh, production capacity, but that's got a lead time of two years or, or more. So it's it's worse than polysilicon in terms of how long it takes to subside, but it's a lot, it's a lot less punishing than polysilicon in terms of just how much cost it's adding to a module. It's because the other topic that I go into in this article is not just here's the shortage and here's the increasing price and here's what it means uh, throughout the supply chain. I also try to examine the impending limiting factor, which is mostly synthetic quartz. Uh, If the price goes up high enough, then it becomes worthwhile to source synthetic quartz. And you've got Triumph Technology, which I mentioned before, which is working on its 5,000 tons of synthetic. Uh, you also have another workaround, which is simply using more of the lower grade quartz. You can you can get lower grade stuff from a much broader array of um, locations in the world. You can switch the crucibles to be lower quality uh, quartz sand, but that means you have to use them more intensely. So now we're seeing a price increase in the low grade and middle grade uh, sand as well. So that's a workaround. This will never totally shut down. You're saying in this,
0: you're saying in this article, you're assuming 3,000 crucibles per gigawatt of solar produced and that it costs $20 in crucibles to make a one kilowatt of solar. How much is that? Is that doubled or is that quadrupled in the, in
1: the time? I think it's doubled since May. Uh, okay. and that in turn doubled since november probably i mean i, I write it in the, somewhere in this long article and it used to be less than one percent of module cost. now it's over ten percent because these aren't production costs these are prices that people are opportunistically charging because they can uh, just like with polysilicon but what i try to begin to answer in this article is how much higher can it go and the conclusion I come to is not very much higher, certainly not 20%. Uh, and that's because you start to see the synthetic being used. And I believe, again, it's very sparse, there's very sparse coverage for these various prices. I believe we may already be at the level where synthetic becomes valid for use, the, the price point. So maybe it can increase a little bit more. But Yeah, it's really interesting
0: that, that um, again, this is almost like a forced learning curve. You've got a certain amount of quartz. Quotes available to you, you caught sand available to you 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 have to use it, and you have to use it even more efficiently, so it drives these companies up the learning curve they 've got to get more out of each crucible or they 've got to make the crucible that much better or they 've got to purify the silicon before they use it that much more. They are innovating as they go anyway because they 're trying to survive on less
1: and produce yes yeah, so bit- um, there's a remarkable there uh, 's a remarkable disparity in the lengths of The lifespans of these crucibles, so the crucible gets used up and then discarded after a time, and this varies from two hundred hours to five hundred hours, depending on the quality of the crucible, and also depending on how pure you need the end product to be. Uh, They're also doing things like pulling the ingots more swiftly from them, Uh, and another yet another thing that's changing is the size of the crucibles. They're getting larger, and I believe that's directly related to uh, fitting in the wafer sizes within the crucible. And of course, wafer sizes have been increasing in the industry. So there are a lot of workarounds that get a lot more attention and thought. And uh, now that it's a limiting factor, like I said.
0: Whereas the West is going to come along and, um, and try and catch up all these gains in the technology of making polysilicon, um, and they're going to start from a position miles behind China, and um, wanting to charge more for for their, their uh, polysilicon, it's almost a, a lost cause. The idea that the West will uh, begin making polysilicon at any time in the next ten years.
1: Well, yeah, you mean you mean wafers rather than polysilicon? Um, but yeah, expanding polysilicon. No, I, don't. I mean
0: polysilicon. Yeah.
1: Oh right. Well, <laughs> yeah, you mean new polysilicon in, in yeah. addition to yeah, the to what's already there, the, yeah. the, modest, the, the modest historical amount. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I agree on that. Um, I mean, wafers were even something that that Chinese uh, said they were going to limit uh, exports of technology on. How do you like that as a man bites dog scenario? The Chinese saying we're not going to share our technology with you. Well, I know people have gone to a number of Chinese factories
0: and said their their factory automation is is years ahead of the West's. You can't make technology with technology for 25 years without learning a thing or two and moving ahead of the crowd Mm. anyway if anyone else can tolerate reading uh, the detail of this story or feels it's important for their job it's on the website www.rethinkresearch.biz you click on energy you're in the weekly analysis section The, the the quartz crystal story is the third story just going to um, change direction entirely now and go to Connor. Um, Norway has discovered seventy billion tons of high-grade
2: phosphate rock in southwestern
0: Norway. Where were they looking?
2: Well, they were looking in the fjords, but they also weren't really looking prior to this, as you alluded to uh, earlier, of now that it's becoming a problem and norway is seeing oil isn't going to last forever northern europe in general is looking more towards the critical minerals side of thing and assaying more regions with their surprisingly vast land resources we had a discovery of rare earth minerals in sweden not too long ago as well and so the Nordics in particular are realizing, oh hey, we have a lot of land. Let's see what's underneath it, and they're actually actively looking. Underneath the but This snow. is a massive, massive discovery. Yeah. Well, yes, that. To... Although
0: this is in the south, the south um... west. Yeah, so it's 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 yeah it's not it's not necessarily um, under snow.
2: No, it it's not too bad. It is kind of among the fjords. It's lots of islands and that sort of things, which will complicate things slightly, particularly because with processing phosphate and and mining it you want to be careful that it isn't leaking into any water supplies because it can create algal blooms which are particularly bad for any marine life that isn't algae <laughs> uh, so Al- it'll have to
0: headline algae eat yeah.
2: so- well, algae suffocates fish. okay
0: 71 billion tons doubling the world's proven results
2: reserves. Exactly. Yes. It's the largest reserve of phosphate globally, overtaking Morocco, which is kind of situated in the Western Sahara region, uh, which was 50 billion tons. And the world's proven reserves before this was 71 billion tons. This is another 70 on top of that. So now the world's proven reserves are 141. Well,
0: that's great. How, when are we going to get to them? And, and what effect is it going to have on the battery industry?
2: This depends on uh, the European Parliament and its attitude towards expediting this particular project because the Norwegian government has taken the much more reasonable approach of fast tracking any critical mineral projects that it has, which is great. Europe, on the other hand, is saying it needs to be under a strategic mineral for it to give its full unbridled support. So the current timeline is optimistically 2028, Right. My expectation is going to be more like 2030. The effect on the battery industry is going to be negligible because currently the battery industry and the solar industry are a minuscule, minuscule amount of the demand for phosphate rock. The vast, vast majority of it, I believe about 90 to 95% is in producing the phosphatic fertilizers. Okay.
0: So uh, by 2030, this will suddenly ease price pressure on phosphate, which will be mounting. Um, both for for, for phosphorus-based uh, fertilisers, but also for um, for the battery industry.
2: Yes. The greater effect of this, though, in my opinion, is that it kind of allocates, as it were, the Moroccan reserves towards fertiliser because the way that Europe's battery regulation is taking hold is that it wants the environmentally friendly stuff. And... Morocco's reserves have greater impurities and generally I trust Norway to be quite environmentally sound when it comes to raw material processing, especially if it has the watchful eye of the European Union.
0: All right, so then then uh, Morocco, the other large um, deposit, will have to find a new home which will be more local countries. Um, would that, will that mean a lowering of its value, you think, over time?
2: I see more of a... Um more of a segmentation of the market. So the Norwegian phosphate will be more competitive in the battery industry and it will be sold into that because it also won't be affected by Europe's carbon border adjustment mechanism, especially if we assume that it's already going to be the most environmentally friendly and the lowest embodied carbon phosphate reserves within Europe, which I think is a fair assumption. The Moroccan phosphate isn't going to be competing with that, if only because of the additional transport required to bring it into Europe to turn it into phosphoric acid. So I can see the Moroccan phosphate being solely used towards the fertilizer market, whereas the Norwegian phosphate can be used in both. But it will be able to gain larger margins through supplying towards the battery industry and also the solar industry, which is used in even smaller quantities.
0: Okay, well, we'll we'll defer to you on that. We assume you're right. Um, We look forward to this coming into the supply chain, but as you say, uh, a discovery, yes, But I mean, what it will do is it will stop people wanting to discover more because they'll go, oh, Norway's got a big chunk of it and they're definitely going to exploit it and we won't have an export market in Europe, so let's move on um, and let's not not dig up the phosphate rock here. I'm just going to look at a couple of short items. There are are about 20 short items in the issue. Um, A couple caught my eye, again, involves Morocco. Uh, China's tinchi company set to invest 280 million in a battery factory in morocco we just the other week talked about goshen putting a battery factory in morocco well, what's the
2: appeal of morocco the appeal of morocco once again is the region's phosphate <laughs> disaster, but also it's manganese so it's not just the phosphate there mm-hmm. is also manganese and iron co-located within deposits. In, so are we going to expect
0: China to start making factories in Norway at some point?
2: Less likely than putting them in Morocco. Okay, okay.
0: well, they don't have their own uh, um, industrialization process quite as advanced as Norway's. <laughs> and they, they, um, Norway can exploit its own resources. Um, do it they know what, what has, the temperature I, is going to be in Morocco and what, what they're going to have to spend on air conditioning for, for factories there?
2: well I, i'm pretty sure that will be more than made up for by the uh, reasonably low labor costs in the existing yeah, um, so. automotive manufacturing industry yeah, yeah. so it swings of roundabouts really
0: yeah and, and presumably that is a source of supply which uh, europe will be happy to import oh absolutely um another one Wait, so, so there was talk this week from another forecaster about renewable investment petering out and then I read uh, that the Denmark's um, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners says um, it's about to raise thirteen billion in its next fund, purely to invest in renewable energy, and that there's never been a better time to invest in renewable energy. And its first close of five point six billions had double the investors lined up, and that fund won't close for another twelve months. So. Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners is, is massive in renewables. It does a lot of, uh, of good projects, uh, and it keeps raising tons and tons of money, despite what anyone else says.
2: Who said it was Peter? I'm, try- I'm
0: trying not to give publicity to rivals of ours, um, <laughs> but, but um, somebody this week said, uh, oh, it's hard to find investment for renewables, uh, and I just laughed. Uh, and thought well, we we won't do yes, yeah, or rather the momentum has slowed because of the recession or something like that i mean i'm not i, I didn't I read it as a headline uh, so i'm I'd be unfair to name the source
1: that's kind of a classic uh news reporting joke, yeah, the momentum slowed, but if it slowed from how fast some things were expanding after the pandemic, that's not really yeah. Uh, significant you know it's a silly thing to say but it's it's a point it's a
0: point in time you know Copenhagen infrastructure partners uh, yet again they've almost doubled um their the total amount of investment available to them and people can't give away money fast enough and put it into dare i say experienced hands uh, you know cip has been around for 25 years and it's done a lot of um well not i won't say good because it's, it's, it's done a lot of good for its investors um, by um, by investing uh, that money before. So it knows what it's doing is, is, is the point.
2: I don't think I could name a single industry that is currently like lacking money.
0: Yeah, well,
2: I went to an EV charging thing not too long ago and they said money is not the problem. We have so many investors lined up, that is sorted. The issue is permitting and actually physically getting things on the roads. The Norge Mining Project, they explicitly said Money is not the problem. They hadn't given names, but the presence of titanium and said, and they said that they're talking to two large aerospace companies that were very interested in the project. So again, money is not the problem. and It's in uh, mining, it's in EV charging, it's in everything. I think we
0: should, should um, finish on that note. You know, if anybody out there still thinks investment is a problem in renewables, give us a call. We'll put you in touch with uh, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners uh, or... Uh, Others like them. Uh, money is not the problem. Uh, it's time politicians got off their bottoms and made life easier uh, for all kinds of permitting, and came up with some ingenious ways of um, of accelerating that process because that's the problem. Okay, and on that bombshell, I think we'll finish this this issue of the podcast. We're having an offsite uh, meeting uh, internally later on, so I'm going I've got to get on my bike and get down there. If you want to read the full uh, stories that are over 11,000 words in this week's issues, all very exciting stuff, go to rethinkresearch.biz, click on energy and you should be among the stories. If you can't get in, a, a nice button will come up offering to give you a free trial and someone will send you the issue as a PDF. If you need to get this stuff regularly, including our new pricing segment on supply chain, then you'll need to subscribe And for $2,000 and above, there are various subscription packages and uh, we hope you'll come and join us and come back next week. Let's hear our next podcast. Thank you and goodbye.